in your Bible tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians 10. And what a joy it is to be in the house of God, to be saved, and we know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you find your place there, if you would honor God's word, we're going to stand and read. And uh, we've been about one year in the book of 2 Corinthians, and uh, this has been such a wonderful yet sometimes challenging study. Uh, I confess when you read the book of 2 Corinthians, the wording of it can sometimes be kind of difficult to, to ingest. And so uh, I will uh, do my best to be able to break this down. But I think this is uh, pretty clear as we, we navigate through some of this tonight. But we're going to read verse 7 down to verse 18. He says in verse 7, Do ye look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trust to himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so are we Christ's. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification or for the building up of the church, and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed, that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. For his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Not a very encouraging statement. It says, let such and one think this, that such as we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. Verse 12, he says, for we dare not to make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise, but we will not boast of things without our measure or beyond the scope of what God had ordained for us to be in authority over. But according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure, uh, he's saying, that would reach even to you there in Corinth. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure or the authority that God established for us, as though we'd reach not unto you, for we are come as far as to you to preach, preaching the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, saying there we don't want to boast by taking uh, credit for what other people did, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly to preach the gospel in the region beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. Verse 17, if you'd read with me. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And if you'd read 18 also, for not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. And fathers, tonight that is our desire. We, we pray that in all that we do, uh, we would seek to glory in Christ, that our glory would be in you, our boast would be Jesus. We pray that we would not seek the commendation that comes from men, uh, Lord, but the commendation that comes from Jesus Christ. We're not seeking to gain popularity in this world. We're seeking to proclaim the glory of Christ in a world that's lost, dying, and going to hell. We pray that you would help us to love you tonight supremely and to love others sincerely. Grant us wisdom as we navigate the great word of the living King. And we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand the depth and the weight of the Word of God. And I pray that it would do its conforming and sanctifying, yea, even its saving work in anyone that doesn't know Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, <clears throat> when, we, um, when I got married 21 years ago, I 
started, we started, we enjoyed the first couple years without kids, and then we began to enjoy the years with the children. And um, once the oven got turned on, it was just children every two years. And once you start having the kids coming along, they really uh, enhance and, and bring such joy in life. And one thing happens if you have some kids is there is a wall in your house somewhere. Isn't there? There's a wall somewhere where you're, every three or four months you visit it, take your shoes off, get up against the wall, and then you measure their height. And, and, and we did that at one of the houses, and the kids uh, were growing up, and then we, we moved the, the, the house we were staying in, and so I, 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 like, I, I'm going to have to either cut the drywall out and take this. I mean, you can't leave this behind, you know, you're very, very sentimental about it. So, so I, you know, I put a board up there, and I'm like writing down all the measurements, so I transferred that to the house we're in now, and so we have a record of the, 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 the lifespan of all the kids and all the ages, and, and uh, as they grew up, they've all, uh, all four of my girls have now passed my wife in height. Uh, she is, I think, five foot two and a half inches. Is, no, I'm going to get in trouble for that. She's going to say five foot three and three quarters. <laughs> anybody, anybody have one of them in your family? I mean, it's down to the quarter inch, buddy. I mean, if you miss it, if I said five, three and a half, I'd have been in trouble, so I'm Pray for me tonight. She will light me up afterwards. Um, but they always compared how much they grew in three to four months. You know, some of them would take off. Others would kind of stall. And then they kind of started stopping. And uh, they always wanted to see if they were taller than their other sisters. Basically, uh, they were comparing their stature uh, to that of their sibling. And comparing ourselves with others is a very natural tendency in the human life. But one area this becomes extremely dangerous and even damaging is when Christians begin to compare themselves to other people. Now, in Judaism, that was the rule of the day, uh, comparing their level of devotion to that of other people, and it was all based upon external observances. Uh, they, they put all the weight on what was showy. And in Luke 18 is the epitome of this. As Jesus says in Luke 18, verse 9, He spake this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. When that happens, when people become self-righteous, it always equates in despising others. You know you've become self-righteous when you become extremely critical of other people. When you always have a negative outlook on other people, you always look down on them for something they're not doing as good as you. Let me say this. You can have great goals in life. Some of you have set some goals coming into the new year. Uh, I would commend you. That is a wonderful thing to set some spiritual goals in life. Some people set a goal. Hey, I want to read so much of the Bible every day. I want to pray so much. I want to be disciplined in different areas of my life spiritually. Some are physical. All of those things are good things. The one thing I would warn you of is this. I found early in my Christian life that when I became extremely devoted in some spiritual area of my life, it tempted me to become critical of other people. Have you ever noticed that? Has anybody else ever noticed that? You don't even realize it. You, you become very, you know, you're, you're reading and you're doing all this stuff and then, then other people, you're like, well, you know, you need to be as devoted as I am about this. You need to get as serious as I am. And, and so 
despite the fact that I've been spending the last 10 years not as devoted, right? So the Lord's like, why don't you show patience to others as I've been patient with you, right? So make sure that you don't become self-righteous as God begins to produce some righteousness in you. Some, and when I use the word righteousness, all that simply means is living right with God. When you begin to put off some old things, when you begin to do what's right, continue with compassion because right living mixed in with humility will produce good growth in you and compassion toward others and desire for them to grow. But pride mixed with good things will produce self-righteousness and it becomes very destructive. So what happened in Luke 18, Jesus says, is they had begun to trust in themselves and it caused them to despise others. And he talks about how two men went up to the temple to pray. A Pharisee, the other man is a publican. These were men on total separate spectrums. Tax collector was at the bottom of the barrel. The Pharisee was the top of the echelon of, uh, of spirituality among Judaism. Verse 11, and the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. What, what an incredible thing. And do you notice who he's comparing himself with? Who's he comparing himself with? Other men. So he doesn't say, God, thank you that I'm not like who he should have been comparing himself to was the Lord. So you wouldn't have ever started out that way. And then he begins to say, you know, like other men, extortioners, unjust. I mean, he begins to like scrape the bottom of the barrel. Let me look at the adulterers, the, the, you know, the people that are known in our culture to be sinful. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector, you know, and that, the, the interesting thing here is he prayed to himself because he's really, you know, God's not listening. He's not going to God seeking God. He's going to God boasting. Like he's boasting to the Lord. What an incredible thought. Verse 13, and the tax collector standing afar off, he would not even approach, would not so much as raise up his eyes to heaven and beat upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, and Jesus, in this story, which is such a well-known and powerful story, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. What's he saying? The man who was moral was not justified. The man who was immoral becomes justified. The Pharisee would have been the guy that was extremely moral, that's why the moral majority of America, you could turn a nation extremely moral and as wicked as what Jesus is talking about here. It's not simply morality we need, it's humility we need. And he says, they that exalt themselves will be humbled and they that humble themselves will be exalted. See, humility is, is at the heart of that. So the church at Corinth was a church that had shown a prideful, divisive spirit uh, in his very first letter that he writes to the church at Corinth, they were arguing over who was the greatest based on who baptized them. So they're comparing themselves to each other, and they're like, you know what, I'm better than you because Alex baptized me. And then Justin says, no, I'm better than you because Braden baptized me. And then Jalen's like, no, I'm not as good as either one of you because Ty baptized me, and that really put it, you know. So, so, uh, but that, that's the kind of spirit that was going on there. And they were comparing themselves and they were comparing their teachers. Now, in the past, they had to learn that from somewhere, didn't they? They had to learn that. And, and, and unfortunately, that's what Judaism has stood up. But they're in Corinth and that's still what's going on. So in the passage in, before us tonight, Paul speaks into this 
um, destructive, foolish, worldly mindset with some godly wisdom. And the first thing he highlights is that prideful comparisons focus on externals. You always find them focusing on the externals. Paul had come under the attack of certain false teachers that made their way into the church. They were vying for the leadership position. And whenever somebody wants to be in the leadership position, they always attack the leaders. Sadly, many in the church had at times believed these charlatans. Throughout this epistle, Paul was responding to their attacks. And here he highlights their attack that they made against him. Verse number 10, it says this, For his letters say they are weighty and powerful. Yeah, Paul can do good with his pen, but have you ever seen that guy? You ever seen how frail he is? You ever see how, listen to how weak his message is? And in response to this, Paul says in verse 7, Do you look on things after the outward appearance? Is that what you're looking at? Because the culture at Corinth was an extremely godless and prideful culture. They had elevated oratory. They had elevated a strong presence. And Paul came with such a humble appearance and in such humility of words. He gave them what they needed, a good dose of humility by the example of humility. Is that not what Jesus did when the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest? As he washed their feet and Paul came to the Corinthians in a way that did not appeal to their expectations. It just, it should have been what they would have learned from, but instead their pride kept them from being teachable. Paul had told them that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the Gentile world. But what's interesting is this, God intentionally chose to wrap the most powerful and exalted and dynamic message in humble dress and use humble and frail human vessels to be the mouthpieces to proclaim that exalted gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish moros. It's the Greek word where we get the word moron or moronic. The preaching of the cross is to them that are not saved, dying, and going to hell. They see it as moronic or foolishness. But to us which are saved, it is the dunamis or the dynamite, the power of God. He goes in verse 25, he says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 1, he says, God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things to confound the mighty, the base things to confound the things that are, or in the things despised, which God has chosen, yea, in the things which are not to bring to not the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And notice how this really compares to the end of our chapter tonight. He says, but of him you are in Christ, who of God has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. He's been sounding this bell uh, since the first letter he wrote of the four letters he wrote to the Corinthians. Now Paul rebukes them for their pride and then sets the example of humility in chapter 2, when he says in 1 Corinthians 2, I, brethren, came not to you in excellency of speech, or declaring unto you the testimony of God, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling in my speech. My preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And this, this was done very intentionally. This was a very purposeful approach. This was a God-ordained approach. 
And again, I talked about this Sunday. Christ was so impossible. His, his words, his miracles were divine, but his presence and his entourage and all of that was just so frail, wasn't it? I mean, you got a bunch of fishermen. Can you not gather a better group than that? They are uneducated. They are uncynical. I mean, these guys are not part of the, the elite of anything. They, they are just barely hanging on to middle class. And that's who the Messiah is hanging out. I mean, then, then you go hang out with the publicans and the sinners and, and you're preaching to them, the riffraff. They, they struggled with that. And, and, and so they do with Paul. And how did they respond to Paul's humble example? When, when Paul came in such humility, what did they do with that? 2 Corinthians 10.10 10. For his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence weak and his speech contemptible. He purposely expressed humility and they slandered him for it. How do you handle slander when you try to mimic Jesus? How do you handle when people speak ill of you when you're trying to be Jesus in the situation? You're like, I really want to get in the flesh right now. You know, it, it would be kind of like this. Um, you know, somebody pulls out in front of you, honks at you, and it's all their fault. And then they're yelling out, what are you afraid? You ain't going to say nothing back there. You're thinking, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. <laughs> like, but I read Revelation 19 and he crushed them. You know? <laughs> so, uh, but we, we like to get in the flesh. I mean, that's our natural tendency. People ask me over the years, they say, you know, how should I respond to this? I say, how do you feel like you should respond? And they tell me, I'm like, it's usually what you don't feel like doing. The, the path of the Lord is typically the path uh, that's the most difficult. Now, Paul highlights, and notice what he says in verse 1 in chapter 10. Who is he mimicking himself after? I, I, Paul, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of who? Christ. Who in presence am base among you, but in absent am bold toward you. Paul was just saying, listen, I'm coming to you in the same... I'm urging you, I'm beseeching you with the, with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I have approached you as Christ. I have put Christ on display. You did not mock me, you mocked the one who sent me. It's one thing to be mocked by the godless world. It's another thing to be mocked by the godly, isn't it? And the church was causing him such grief. Secondly, we see also the externals are the wrong standard of measurement. He says in verse 7, do you look on the things after the outward appearance? I mean, is that what you're making your judgment on? The flesh? you kidding me? What does he say in Romans 7? He says in Romans 7, 18, for I know that in me that's in my flesh dwells every good thing. Is that what he says? There's no good thing. What's he say in Romans 8, 7? Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. I mean, you're, you're, looking, you're looking at the flesh and basing it on that, and, and there's nothing good that dwells in that. He said back in chapter 5 of verse 12, 
uh, of 2 Corinthians, he says, they glory in appearance but not in heart. This is man's natural tendency to elevate the external. Do you remember back in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16 when the great last judge Samuel came to the home of Jesse to anoint one of his seven sons. He didn't know which one it was, but one of them were going to be the next king. Saul was the first king. He goes to anoint one of his sons. We know he ended up anointing David. But before David, who was out watching the sheep, he kept his six uh, probably best looking and sharpest or biggest sons and, and who he thought would have been chosen out of the lot. And David's out there watching the sheep when Samuel arrives. But 1 Samuel 16, verse 6, it says, And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab, said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And it was because Eliab had the physical presence that looked like a king. He, 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 he saw him as being someone that would have physically looked the part. But God responded in verse 7, it says, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the what? It's what we do, but the Lord looketh on the heart. That is the issue. Now, one thing that happens to religion that is void of truth is it always externalizes religion into a system of external works. This is, this, this is so essential to understand. If you, you know you're in a system when you know what you're supposed to do, but you don't know why. You know the what, but you have no do why. People ask you, why do you guys do that? You're like, I don't know. You ever ask the question, like, why, why, you ever think about it? Well, I don't know. Like, like what, why, why, do you, why do you take that in your mouth, or why do you stand and kneel and pray? Why, why do you do that? Why do you get baptized? I don't know. Why, why do you take Lord's, I don't know. There's people I've talked to all through the years, and they were in a system, and it externalized it. They knew what they were supposed to do. They just didn't know why. It's essential to know why you're supposed to be doing it, really more importantly than what you're doing. Because the why is the motive, the what is the doing. The what is important, but why are you doing it? If you don't get the why right, you don't get the what right. And so, in, in this day of, 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 of Paul's day... In, in Judaism, they had replaced the godly quality of humility with pride, and the entire Jewish religious system turned the truth of God's Word into this external show. You think this has happened today in some groups? And, and really, probably about every, every group that's out there, this, this becomes problematic, but there are some that it's just stifling, and it's so clear. Matthew 23, 5, he says this, of the Jews in that day, but all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries, these little pieces of clothing they wore to use as it went back to Deuteronomy chapter number six. And, and, and that was to be a sign to read, to remember to, um, they would have scriptures placed in these boxes that would literally hang off their head or off of their uh, waistline there. And it says they enlarged the borders of her garments. This was all for show. Matthew 6, remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus, uh, he said, beware of how you give all your alms. Don't do it to be seen of men. Um, you know, don't let your right hand know what your left hand does. I mean, some people take that so literally. I mean, you know, they're putting their hand behind their back. Or it's, it's the idea of just don't. And then 
Don't pray to be seen of men. It says, enter into your closet. I've had people say, does that make an invitation wrong because people come and pray and, and other people could see them pray? If praying publicly was wrong, then why did Jesus pray at the cross? The, the praying in public is not wrong. It's, it's what he's saying, and they miss, people miss the whole point. The whole point is the motive to be seen of men. That's the problem. It's not pro- the problem is not praying in public. The problem is praying to be seen of men. People prayed in public all through the scriptures. Fasting to be seen of men in chapter 6, verse 16 through 18. Uh, and then Matthew 15, 8, he says, This people draws nigh to me with their mouth, honors me with their lips. And it says this, But their heart is far from me. Now, how can you honor God with your lips, but your heart be far from him? Now, the answer to that is by religious ritual, by tradition, by going through motions. Sometimes I stop myself when we're singing songs up here, and I stop and may have to pause for a verse and just reflect on those words so that my heart is grasping the, the, the reality of that and the weightiness of that, to elevate that. Luke sixteen fifteen, and he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourself before men, but God knoweth your hearts. He says, For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That is a very fascinating and insightful thought and judgment from Christ. You know, men highly esteem those that look spiritual and devoted, but God sees it as an abomination. I mean, what was being elevated as the most religious people of the day, Jesus says, you're an abomination. Because those who serve God to be seen of men, those who pray, give, and fast or serve so that others can see their level of devotion, how spiritual they are, are actually committing idolatry. Because they are not serving God, they're serving themselves. They're using God to elevate themselves. Could anything be more wicked? And, and well, you know, nobody, nobody said thanks. Nobody, nobody said that. Or, or we have to ask ourselves, why would I? Why am I doing that? that that's why when people quit ministries, that's why when people give up and they're like, you know, I'm done with this. Let me ask you, why were you doing it? Why, why were you serving? Were did Jesus tell you to quit? Did the Lord tell you to back out? Did God say don't do that? Instead of serving God, oftentimes people serve their flesh because if they kept getting approval, they would keep doing it. We can't, we can't do it for approval. We can't do it so people think much of us. We do it because we think much of Him. Jews were so focused on their nationality as part of their salvation, they came to believe that simply being a Jew granted them entrance into the kingdom. And, and John the Baptist came in Matthew 3, and he says, Think not to say within yourself, We have Abraham to our father. He says, I say to you that God's able to have these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. John the Baptist says, Don't trust the external. Don't trust your nationality. You need to repent. And, and so we see that the, the wrong place to place standards is on the external, and that's exactly what self-righteous pride begins to do. And it can creep into any, any person. Thirdly, Paul's defense against false standards. We have several points here under that. Paul's defense against false standards. He says in verse 7, If any man trust to himself, uh, I confess the King James rendering in this chapter becomes very challenging at times. Uh, 
it, it literally is if anyone is, is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this, that as he is in Christ, we are also in Christ. If anyone's convinced in himself that he belongs to Jesus, I want to remind you is what he's saying, we also belong to Jesus. Paul first appealed to the fact that being in Christ is the standard, not some external quality. I think about Philippians 3, Paul says in verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh he hath where, if he might trust in the flesh, he says, I more. Paul's like, I was a really good little Jew, his kid and growing up, and I mean, I was just very devout, just very, very solid. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day, I was of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteous, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He says, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. When he came to Christ, he recognized all the external stuff meant nothing. I mean, it, all this external stuff I thought was gaining me interest to heaven was actually the roadblock from getting me into the kingdom. I had to lose all faith in that. That's why when I talk to people who go to church and I ask them the question, if you were to stand before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And they begin to tell me things about what they do. Well, I think I'm a pretty good person. I do this and this. How is that any different than a self-righteous Jew who's now basing their own ability to merit themselves favor with God through external works? And it's an abomination. We have to come to the point where you realize that everything that I could muster up in my life is worthless to save me. I can't save one percent of my life with my works. People say silly things like this sometimes over the years. You know, you as a pastor, you have a special relationship with God. You've got a direct line there. Will you pray for me? I'm like, do you, do you think, like, it's, 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 it, we have to understand Christ alone is our righteousness. You, you are, you are complete in him. That's why when people say you can lose your salvation, oh really? So tell me, how many good works do you have to maintain to keep yourself saved? Pray tell. If flapping your arms can't get you in the air, why do you think flapping them can keep you in the air? And if your works have no ability to merit you favor with God, why on earth do you think you now have to maintain your salvation through your human merit? He who saved you keeps you. Whatever got you to salvation sustains you in salvation. If you're saved by grace, guess what you're kept by? Jesus says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And of those who've come to me, he says, I have lost none. And then he says, all who would come to me, I will no wise cast out. But Jesus is the one who keeps us. Aren't you thankful for that tonight? Amen. Aren't you thankful that you're here tonight because there is a God in heaven that has kept you. He kept you. You're here because he's kept you. He won't let you go. But I, but I have free will. Your free will is in the bounds of his sovereignty. You are not absolutely free. You are free inside the scope of sovereignty. There are not two absolutely free entities. It's impossible. 
If you were absolutely free, God would not be. Philosophically, you understand? Because your freedom can impose upon his freedom. Therefore, if you drew a circle and this was, it's kind of like your child could be let out in the backyard and there's a fence. He's free to play inside the fence. You are free in your life, but God, praise God, He keeps us closed in. Praise God, there's boundaries. You know, and it's in, 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 in much of my life, it's been God pulling me against my will. Isn't the song right when it says, prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I love? Uh, he, he, he keeps me, He preserves me. Paul understood that. It's, it's His righteousness. I just think it's amazing to consider that the Apostle Paul has to defend himself to these people. He, he starts the church at Corinth. He ends up authoring 13 books of the New Testament. He's doing all these missionary travels. And, 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 and they're like, he's just not externally approved. He just doesn't meet our qualifications. Oh, really? Wow. I just think it's an amazing reality. Why would, why, would they, why would they feel like this? Because Satan's deceptions are incredibly powerful. He uses lies, deceit, slander, and manipulations to assault God's leaders. I mean, Sunday we saw Jesus healing a demon-possessed man who was both blind and mute. And they call him, he does this by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the dung, the god of the dung. Jesus is empowered by Satan, is what they were saying. And just as Paul had to defend himself, so Christ had to defend himself. And it's frustrating when that happens. There, there are times in your Christian life, friend, that you will be so maligned that your silence has to be broken by some level of defense. The Bible says, don't answer a fool as you enter into his folly, but then answer a fool Right? Proverbs says it right after it. It's like, sometimes you have to defend yourself. Sometimes you're like, that lie is so damaging. That, that, that is so hurtful to the gospel and the cause of Christ if they perpetrate that. I mean, Jesus defended himself against the false slanderous lies that came against him. John 5, if you haven't really navigated that, uh, if, if it doesn't come to your mind what it's about, it is such a tremendous chapter. There's nine witnesses to Christ in John's gospel. Six of them are highlighted in John 5 alone. He says, in, I'll just give five, six of them to you real quick in John 5. He says, I myself ver validate myself. Now, you and I can't really do that because we don't, you know, it's, I mean, you, you can, you can defend yourself, but it's just your own word. But Jesus is speaking God's word. John 5, 31, Jesus said, If I bear witness of myself, my witness uh, is not true. But then he goes on in verse number 32, and he says, I know it's true because of who who sent me. And then he says in, in, in uh, verse 32 through 35, John the Baptist was, was a witness. He says in John 5, 33, You sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. He talks about his works being a witness. In John 5, 36, he says, Because I have greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father hath given me to finish the same works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father sent me. 
And then he goes on, the fourth witness was the Father, John 5, 37. He says, and the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. The Scriptures in John 5, 39, he says, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they testify of me. And then he says, Moses was a witness in John 5, 45 and 6. He says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses. For if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. And, and he just lays out this list of witnesses. So, so Paul here has to uh, defend himself because of their accusations and assault against him. You know, because if they could discredit Paul, you're basically discrediting Scripture, aren't you? Uh, next, Paul's second defense is recognizing the authority God had given him to build up the body of Christ in verse 8. He says, For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. And so, God had given him the authority for the purpose of, of building up the church, of, of edifying the body of Christ, Paul understood the Lord had given him that authority. And, and the difference is really the, these, these false teachers that were attacking Paul, um, they use their authority to benefit themselves. And, and that's one thing that you'll find between a true teacher, a false teacher, a faithful pastor, an unfaithful pastor, a faithful leader, an unfaithful leader. Uh, one will use you to benefit themselves. The other will use their position to benefit you. The, one, will, one will be served from their position, the other will use their position to serve. In this verse, Paul also clearly expresses a level of discomfort in speaking of his authority. Uh, it was a lot easier for Paul to be humble than it was to boast of his authority. Uh, he says in verse again, verse number 8, uh, For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority which the Lord hath given us for edification, not for your destruction. The word boast there is used 38 times in the New Testament. Um, it's interesting, the first couple times he uses it in the book, of Corinth, uh, the book of Corinthians, he uses it of boasting of the Corinthians themselves, like he, he rejoiced in them. It's used seven times in this chapter alone. It's used 38 times in the New Testament, seven times in chapter 10. 25 of the 38 times boasting is used, it's in the book of Corinthians. Boasting was a problem. Uh, they boasted in their flesh. They boasted in, 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 in what they could accomplish. They boasted in all these kind of things. He says, why do you boast or glory as if you didn't receive it in chapter 4, verse 7, because they were boasting and being better and different than other people? Just many, many problems. And, and listen, what, listen what Paul boasted in in chapter 11, verse 30. He said, if I must needs glory or boast, I will glory or boast of the things which concern my infirmities. I'm going to boast in what I'm weak in. Because when I'm weak, it just puts God on display. Because it's, it's the Lord doing it. You ever feel that way? You ever, you, ever, you ever get to the end of like seeing God use you to like reach someone with the gospel or to see them grow? And they're like, you've been such a help. And then you're like, listen, it wasn't me. The Lord, is, if, if you got anything from me, it was the Lord that did that. God is, God is, and you're so humbled, but then you go, maybe even go home and, 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 you, and you get on your knees in tears saying, God, thank you for letting my life be used like a vessel. You ever get into a conversation with someone and, and, and later that day you're like, I don't even know where all that came from. 
I don't even know where all those, I mean, it just kind of flowed right out. And then good fruit comes out of that conversation. Maybe the person gets saved or comes to church or some benefit out of that. And, and, and you're just so humbled by that. And you know it's not you. Like, you know, I don't, I, I, I'm not the one able to create that. And, 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 and you just boast in the Lord. And Paul, Paul, Paul was one who gloried in his weaknesses. Third, Paul would use his authority to discipline the unruly. So he used his authority to build up or edify the body, according to verse 8. But he would also use his authority to discipline those who were unruly. He had every right to expand on the authority that God had given him as an apostle and um, as the founder of the church at Corinth. But he would only appeal to his authority if he was pressed into it. Have you ever noticed this? That rebellion is what causes people to appeal to their authority? Like, think about in your life with your children. When did you have to make the statement, because I'm your dad, or because I'm your mom? You don't say that because your child is being sweet and obedient. You know? It's because of a level of rebellion. Example of a boss or a teacher. If you're pressed to say, you need to do this because I'm your boss and I'm telling you, or you need to do this because I'm your coach or I'm your teacher, or I'm, I'm your sergeant, or, or I'm whatever. Like you, now, if your sergeant had to repeat himself, then you're probably going to be in real trouble. So some of you are like, that never would happen. You know? so, but you understand that if somebody has to rise to appeal to their place of authority, it's because there's a level of rebellion that's going on that's pushing that person to then say that. Paul realized how much better it would be as if they would just recognize his authority and he would not have to boast in it or have to highlight that, hey, I'm, I am an authority over you. In 2 Corinthians 10 verse 9, he says that I may not seem as if I were terrifying you by letters. I don't want to, I don't want to scare you with letters. He had written them a severe letter back in chapter 7 verse 8. He talks about how he wrote, he said, I wrote you a letter and, and we don't have it uh, that's why I said Paul's written four letters to the Corinthians, two that were inspired, two that were not inspired, but he refers to them throughout his writings, and there's what's known as a, a severe letter that he had written to them, and it, and it made them sorrowful. And he says, I'm not glad that it made you sorrowful, but I'm glad that you sorrowed unto repentance. Like, it produced good fruit. Now, what happened was, those false teachers are like, see, he's a dictator. He's an authoritarian. He's trying to scare you with these letters. He says, I'm not trying to terrify you, verse number 9, with these letters. That's not my goal. But, but he says in verse 10, they said, because his letters are weighty and powerful, but boy, this guy's a weakling. And look what he says in verse 11. Let such a one think this, that such as we are in word and letters when we are absent, such will we be indeed when we are present. That's like this. You better clean your room. Oh, whatever. If you don't clean your home, I'm going to be home and your dad's going to be home, or, you know, you're letting them know when I show up, I'm not just giving you a verbal threat here. When I show up, my bodily presence will embody my strong language. Like, like you better, you better, and, 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 and that's not what you want to do. You know, as, as parents, isn't it so much funner to parent when your kids are obedient? And it's so much more enjoyable when they just participate in the reality of humanity? You mean I got to do dishes? Yeah, you got to do dishes. Yeah, I went to work for 10 hours today. 
See all them groceries over there? Bottom wall. I remember that gas that we drove you back and forth. Yeah. Insurance. Remember when I took you to the dentist last week? Drop you off to school. Where'd you go? Where'd you get your shoes from? Where'd you get that phone? Where'd you pay for it? Oh, that's, oh, okay. I'm just asking you to do dishes. It would take you maybe 10 minutes after we, me working for 10, eight, 10 hours a day. I think that's reasonable. Isn't it crazy? Oh, and then you want to grow up and move out, right? And then you want to be on your own. And you, you, you might want to start by uh, cleaning your room first. Because uh, I don't know if that person that you're living with wants to do dishes either. Right? Oh, and then you're... It's a, it's a reality, but Paul had to, Paul had to warn them. He had to, he had to flex some muscle here. And, 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 and that's a... That's a um, let me say this. If you find yourself having to flex your muscles a lot as a parent, like with, with just... With your kids, learn to be proactive instead of reactive. If, if it becomes habitual, there's a problem in the parenting. It's not, it's not always in the kids, it's the parenting. Because what's happening is you're working in the... How much harder does it take to discipline versus doing positive instruction? Sitting down with your children and saying, Hey, uh, honey, I want to sit down with you for a minute. Listen, over the last couple weeks, I've, I've been noticing a pattern building, and it's concerning me. I just want to know what's going on. And you begin to have a conversation you begin to highlight the importance of their spiritual life. You begin to highlight how important it is for them to honor God with their obedience. You begin to under, show them that, listen, when you chose to treat me like this, you're not treating me like this. You're treating God like this because he's placed me in a, in, in a, in a place of authority because I want you to learn to be disciplined. I want you to learn to be faithful and obedient. And one day you're going to have a boss. One day you're going to have a family. And if you don't start learning how to do these things now, why do you think you'll be able to do them then? And you don't, you, you begin to talk to them on the front end before it happens. It's, a, it's, 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 it's you, you'll accomplish twice as much with half the energy. Because if you don't do the front end, oh, it's coming, baby. Am I right? Yes, sir. And you'll remember and you'll be like, ah, oh, I should have done that. What pastor said. And just do it next time. Um, now, now, I would say this. Uh, Paul spoke of the meekness and gentleness of Christ back in chapter 1, or, or verse number 1. But was Jesus always meek and gentle how he dealt with people? Was he? No. Uh, Matthew 11, verse 20 through 22. He began to abrade the cities where Moses' mighty works were done because they repented not. He said, woe unto thee, Chorazin. Uh, it doesn't have an exclamation point because he was talking in a level tone. He, he calls, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. He begins to charge them with such sin that they will be under the judgment of God. Jesus threw out the greedy money changers, ran them out of the temple with a whip. Matthew 21, verse 12. That is an astonishing thing. He threw over money changers, the seats that sold doves. They didn't like him already. I mean, they didn't like him already. He goes in and throws their tables over, makes a cord of whip, like, like, a, like, like a whip out of a bunch of cords. This is a massive complex. I mean, it was as big as 11 soccer fields up there. He drove them out. Jesus was a man to do that. Like, he dominated the place somehow. I don't know how he pulled that off, but it happened. And they, that's one of the most astounding things if you understood the magnitude of that, like, 
how do you clear out like the mall? And there's thousands of people. Like that's just, what kind of presence came there that day, right? I mean, Jesus harnessed the place. Matthew 23, Jesus decries the hypocritical religious leaders, denounces them. Jesus came in grace, grace, mercy, gentleness, grace. He came very soft and, and kind and gracious and gentle. But finally, when they rejected him over and over and over again, listen to how he talks to them, Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. You were not going in yourselves, neither suffer you them that were entering in to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Very likely, he's speaking at such a high level of tone here. For ye devour widows' houses and make a pretense, you fake these long prayers, therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he goes on and talks about how they go and find one proselyte, somebody they can convert, and they make him a twofold more, a child of hell. Woe unto you, blind guides. Verse 17, you fools and blind. Verse 19, you fools and blind. Verse 23, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He ends the section finally in verse 33, 20 verses later. And he says, this is how he ends it. You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Whoa! Now I, Paul, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Wouldn't you much rather have Jesus approach you that way? Y'all with me? Christ is meek and gentle when he is, he, he comes to us in grace and mercy. But if he is rejected again and again and again and again, the only thing left is judgment. I mean, it's his grace that's withholding the judgment that's impending anyway. Paul is saying, I came to you in person as, a, as I can come to you in person as strong as my letter is, but that's, that's not what I want to do, but I will do it. And because he loved them enough, he would come in that way. Let me ask you, friend, if Christ came to you today, would you listen and obey his gracious, loving, kind, and gentle speech to you? Does your life show a submission and loving obedience to Christ? Or would he have to be stern with you? Would he say, listen, I have been talking to you. And some people get so offended, they would, you know, some people think that if a pastor ever gets stern with them or in preaching, like, oh, you know, preacher, that was kind of unsettling. You got kind of worked up. How could you preach Matthew 23 without having some passion? Right? Shouldn't the pastor somewhat embody what he's preaching? Shouldn't there be some sense of like, you think when Jesus cleared the temple out, everybody's like, you know what, we're kind of sitting back drinking our lattes, feeling very comfortable about this. I mean, it would have been so unsettling. You ever been in a situation where the temperature rises to such a level that you become like, this is very awkward. Like, I really don't want to know what to do. <laughs> right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? It's like the person that disciplines their kid right in the store, right in front of you. You're like, um. And then they look at you and you're like. <laughs> you know, the husband and wife get in an argument. And then they, what do you think? I'm like, oh, you guys need the Bible. I'll talk to you. you know, so very uncomfortable right now. And so Jesus, Jesus would have put people in these situations, I can tell you that there have been some people would have been like, whoa, this is intense. It's intense. We see going on verse 12, Paul highlights the foolishness of earthly comparisons. He says, for we dare not compare ourselves with a number or compare ourselves uh, with some that commend themselves. They measure by themselves each other. And he says, it's just, it's just not wise. One of the fatal flaws 
people, of people is they will base their judgment and view on themselves instead of the biblical standard. That's why people say things like this, you know, to me, God is. And they, they've, they basically have turned uh, their, their own opinion into the rock and, and turned the rock of God's word into sand. You know, the mirror that we hold up to our life is not how good we are compared to others. It's the, it's the mirror that should reflect Christ's image to us. And when that happens, we realize there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good. There, there's, there's no one that has not sinned, according to 1 John 1, eight. So what standard do you compare yourself with? Who, who are you comparing yourself with? Matthew Henry rightly says how common it, it is for persons to judge of their own religious character by the opinions and maxims of the world around them, but how different is the rule of God's word and all flattery, self-flattery is the worst. Therefore, instead of praising ourselves, we should strive to approve ourselves to God. Fifth, Paul stayed in the bounds of the authority God gave him here in verse 13. He said, we will not boast things without our measure, but according to the measure and the rule which God hath distributed. Um, Paul was not like the self-righteous religious leaders who were boasting in themselves, Paul was content to stay in the boundaries that God had established for him to minister in. He goes on in verse 13, he says, a measure to reach even unto you. You could word that as a sphere which especially includes you. In spite of the false teachers claiming Paul didn't have authority, he did in fact have authority that reached even to the church there at Corinth. In verse 14, he says, For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reach not unto you. We are come as far as unto you, preaching the gospel. Uh, we have gone to the boundaries that God set for us, and that's even to you, preaching the gospel. Verse 15, he says, Not boasting of things without our measure or outside the boundaries God set for us, that is, of other men's labors. And this is a jab in verse 15 at the false religious leaders that went into the church at Corinth began to labor in the field that Paul had planted. Paul's the founding pastor, starts the church, false leaders come in, and now they're trying to take control of another man's field. He says, we don't do that. Verse 15, the rest of that, he says, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule. What he's saying there basically is, when you have grown in your faith, when you have solidified, we can go beyond the borders of just Corinth to other places where we can bring the gospel where they haven't heard it. And according to ancient church fathers, he did indeed do that and brought the gospel into Spain. A healthy church is a growing church. Numerically, spiritually, there should be signs of growth. A healthy Christian is a growing Christian. And would, would you say your faith is actively, progressively growing? Our 242 groups, I'm telling you, friends, don't miss that. That's going to be a key place of you growing. And I will say this, if you choose not to do that, that's your choice. But it will benefit not only you, but the people that you could have ministered to. The other people that you could have invested your life into. When, when, you, when you invest your life in studying the Word of God and pouring into others, that's essential to the Christian faith. Verse 16, he says, and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand, or not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. He continues with that thought. Paul had no desire to boast or to take credit for work done in another person's sphere of ministry. Again, this is a jab at those, those false teachers that were creeping in. 
One thing that I've seen through the years that greatly pains me as a pastor who, when I see guys who take churches over and they didn't start the church, they take it over. Sometimes you have guys that have the pastor's heart and they just love those people and they minister to them and they just... And then you have guys who come in and they have their own agenda. And they come in and they want to change 50,000 things. And they, want, they, they expect the church that they've only been there for a short amount of weeks or months to follow them, and they're like, well, you've not been proven as a pastor. You know, you, they, they don't, the sheep don't trust you. They don't, they're not sure of you. And, and, and then when people begin to leave and a fence begins to rise, that guy leaves. He just bails out. And then it hurts a lot of people. I was on the phone yesterday with a guy that this happened to. The pastor and the entire leadership of the church left. And I said, why did they leave? Because they were promoting some new things, doing all these changes, doing all these teachings. They were pounding the drum of certain teachings that the church was just not familiar with and, and trying to ram that down the church. And, and then they leave. And they don't even get up in front of the church and tell them to leave, and they just bail out. And I just think, what, what cowards? It frustrates me. You, if, if you bail out because they don't get on board with you, you're not a shepherd. You're a hireling because a hireling flees when the trials come. But a faithful shepherd will last in spite of the trials. And, and some of you have been in churches where that's happened. And it's, it's, it's painful. It's, it's discouraging. It's confusing. It's like what went on. Sometimes, you know, we had, we had an individual maybe a year or so ago, this last year, who left, who was involved with a lot of things. And I believe God plucked that individual out of our church for a reason. I haven't really talked about that. But, um, but it's, when, people, when people do that, it's, it's, it, shows, it shows a lack of spiritual maturity. It shows a lack of true love for people. Because when people don't get their way, then they're just done. It's not good. It's not good. Um, the, the, the fourth thing we see tonight, and, and, and I've seen this, and, and I, I hate to just pound that drum, but I've seen this happen recently in multiple churches. And it's just grieved me. I had, I had a pastor friend who started a church, been there for 50 years. A guy came in, took it over, and took the church and literally has now cut it in half. Just, just, just so, so painful. You know, we, we as a church need to pray that God will raise up pastors and teachers. I have pleaded with God, and He has done that. He is raising up more people this last year, young men that feel called to preach, women that feel called to be a pastor's wife, than we've ever seen. And we're praying, and we're preparing these men, and we're establishing. We've got 30 people or so signed up for our Lighthouse Bible Institute. We are, we are training people for ministry. We are seeking to invest. Because... I've, I've been asked multiple times to take churches over. We have people calling us saying, hey, you got somebody could take churches over. God's planted me here. I don't feel called at all to leave here. So, but some churches that are good churches, they need someone to take that work. And so pray for that. Pray that God will raise up those leaders. And then number four, very quickly, and we'll wrap this up. The right standard will bring glory to God. Look at verse 17 and 18. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord, for not he that commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Again, the false teachers were, were those who boasted in themselves. They commended themselves. And, and, and Paul says, you have that wrong. It's not who people think is great. It's who God says. 
And he says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3, I love this passage. He says, but with me it's a very small thing that I would be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. And notice what the Lord will do. He'll bring to light the hidden things of darkness. He'll make manifest the counsel of the heart. Then every man will have praise of who? You're going to be... If, if, if no one ever recognizes anything you do for the Lord, you will be most blessed by God. <laughs> and and that's, that's where you want to be. You want to hear the Lord say, well done, thou good and what? Faithful servant. And so God's measuring stick is not based on how big we can make ourselves. It's not how tall we can stand. It's how we measure up to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 